So, hot take. Economic freedom is for retirees, if they're lucky, and professors, if they're lucky, uh, if they get tenure or something like that. So they're the, they're the parts of our society who can work on the things that they want to work on, hobbies that they want to work on, projects, businesses, ideas that they want to work on without having to worry about where their next meal is coming from, uh, assuming again that they had a retirement plan or that they have tenure. And this brings us to today's topic, which is UBI, Universal Basic Income. For someone who doesn't know about Universal Basic Income, what would be your like elevator pitch? You know, if you were like pitching this to the to the to the government, you know, you just like walked into the elevator and boom, there's there's all Cyril in there. You're like, oh, Cyril, and then you're like, oh, uh, boy, do I have an idea for you? Well, so uh, the fact of the matter is that there actually already is something akin to that. So uh, if people have been aware of the news lately, there has been a uh, recent kind of green paper, they call it, around a mandatory pension fund in South Africa. Fortunately, it has currently been scrapped, thanks to some friends at uh, Dear South Africa, uh, an online site where you can submit your uh, sort of feedback to these kind of government decisions. But basically, the idea is within that act that there was a certain part where it's going towards things like universal basic income, where effectively, you would distribute a fixed amount to basically everyone within a country, or I would say anyone within a certain jurisdiction. And the idea being that rather than having to spend money on focusing on different aspects of, you know, poverty and those kind of things, that it would be easier to just distribute it and let market forces take the correct actions to help those people out. Right. So I think what a, an interesting distinction over there is, is that when UBI is bandied about, people tend to lump it in as a, as a socialist solution to a capitalist created problem, but it's neither socialist nor capitalist really. It's kind of post-capitalism is there are a bunch of problems that capitalism has that it is ill-equipped to solve because not everything that we do in our, you know, in our lives has a market value. So by guaranteeing an income for everyone, regardless of social or financial status or incentives to cover their basic needs. So that's like housing, clothing, and food. In South Africa, I'm going to spitball an amount and say like 8,000 Rand per month would, would cover that, maybe less. And the reason for it not being dependent on on social or, fin uh, or like financial status is that you don't want a point where people are disincentivized from actually going and working and then losing access to their uh, UBI, which has been one of the big problems with welfare. Yeah. So one of the one of the challenges with UBI is first of all is uh, there's a there's there's the model of you're giving out money to a certain population and, there, and there's questions around, you know, whether you can do effective targeting. So in most of the UBI studies, they kind of 
focus on a certain group and it's usually the people who need that money the most. And I'm talking more in terms of developed or developing societies because, you know, to people who watch like news in the US, UBI means a different thing there because to a certain degree, it's a first world country. There are certain things taken care of. And when you go and look to things like Africa, there is a more dire situation in terms of poverty. Yeah. So so I, I like to think of a UBI as kind of being like seed money for everyone, right? And I know that like being paid for being alive sounds pretty outrageous, but even in South Africa, and, you know, we'll talk about South Africa during this, this episode because it's, you know, the economy that we're the most familiar with, but this can be applied to many other developing countries and also developed countries to a certain extent. But we have enough capital, and by capital, I don't actually mean money. I mean um, access to buildings and resources for construction and stuff to shelter and clothe everyone. Now, with uh, UBI, because it's going to be going to the entire population, there'll they'll have to be a bunch of regulations in place around that um, to make sure that it's not... Uh, it's not mm. exploited. And I'd, I'd say that the one that really jumps to mind for me is just like not allowing people to take out loans on their UBI. Like if you are only, if you, your UBI doesn't count as your income, therefore you are not credit, credit worthy until you have an income and your credit is only applied to your post UBI income. I'd say let's uh, before we get into the before we get into the potential downsides of UBI. So the first thing is also that it has to have a source, right? So with any kind of discussion about money, uh, I always like to think of it in terms of flows of money. So cash is is something that I would consider almost like a you know a, a liquid. It kind of flows from one one place to another. So yeah. you need to have a source, which is someone who is I would say economically productive. They are already they already have some form of job, and they would gather you know that they would have money coming from that. And obviously, that uh, in maybe the communist sense is that value that is being created, uh, and for that value that you create by doing some sort of work or by giving your time, that value you converting into money, uh, and then by taxing that money, it comes into the government, and that money can flow through UBI to those who need it more uh, to come and get some of these sort of benefits of, you know. Well, technically uh, to everyone. To everyone. I mean, to, <laughs> to a certain extent, you would be taxed at a certain rate. And then I think the rate in this specific bill was between 8 and eight and 12% of earnings. So this would be a tax for people who are currently taxpayers. Yeah. It would be a tax added to your income tax. So at the moment, you would have income tax. So you know, at the end of the month, you just get less money. There's also questions about the effect that that would have. So imagine, uh, you know, you're a salary owner, suddenly a switch is turned or the bill is signed and you get around 10% of your money is now taken away. What effect that has? But then the uh, the kind of outcome is that the expect expectation in this bill is that they wanted to get to a value of around 7,500 Rand per month for basically everyone. And even, you know, in a sense of true universal basic income, meaning like there's no targeting, uh, 
you would essentially get that back even if you are a salary earner. But whether that's the same as your uh, sort of your ten percent that you put in, you know that that's a question that you kind of have to wrap, grapple with. And at that point, especially for the middle class, who are predominantly the taxpayers, they would there would be a political problem with that. And as you can see, if you go into some of these uh, people who are, um, I would say, disputing the bill. A lot of those concerns are around the fact that can we really trust a government to do it effectively when in South Africa we have this big problem of corruption? So I, I actually believe, and this is, uh, this is from what I take away from UBI, right? Is that UBI uh, is completely affordable. So in South Africa, we would essentially, we would essentially be redirecting existing budgets from uh, social and welfare programs such as like RDP housing and because people can now afford to do that right and uh, let's talk about just housing for a second is that governmental housing projects are extraordinarily complicated and there are contractors involved and there's so many there's so many holes in that bucket where money can just be lost through corruption etc cetera, etc cetera. Whereas UBI is very simple, right? It's capital, and then that capital gets distributed to uh, to all citizens of the country. So there's actually a lot less of a chance of that money disappearing than it would have through all these different welfare programs. The second one is that there's a lot more market stimulation from people opening businesses because, and this has also been shown in uh, in the uh, the small studies that have been conducted is when people are free to work on the things that they want to, there's big entrepreneurial spike. I mean, I would have started my own company a long time ago if I didn't have to work a full-time job to, you know, just make sure that I can eat and live. And a lot of people go back and study. And then there's, you know, the people who want to volunteer, you know, work on the climate problem. There's the growth of like human to human jobs where we actually want humans more like a barista or like taking care of the elderly. And there are people who are artistic, you know, they're making film projects, they're making art. Um, but I think more importantly is that like when we talk about, oh, UBI is unaffordable is I think that that's actually not necessarily correct because even if you are, let's take, for instance, a bum on the UBI system, you just take the money and you only ever spend but you don't <clears throat> necessarily contribute economically is at least you're not homeless and also you are now spending eight thousand rand a month which means yeah. that you are actually contributing economically you're going to the coffee shop and you're paying for your coffee you're injecting that capital back into the system that creates more jobs and stimulates these businesses etc etc so i so the extra tax revenue that comes from just like VAT for all this extra money that is being uh, like re-stimulated inside of the economy is great. <laughs> and and, and it essentially like when you're doing that purchase, that VAT would go back in, into a tax incentive. So on the one side, I mean, playing a bit of devil's advocate, if from what I've been reading is that there's a, there's this idea of a constraint. So when you're in poverty or in the situation where you would benefit from UBI, there's generally some constraints and whether it's the access to capital 
that we talked about, or you need some sort of healthcare, or if you're disabled, you would maybe need some sort of disability assistance. In a kind of technocratic way, you might say like, well, rather than divert this money in a general sense, can we not take that money and convert it to a, a specific cause, such as housing or healthcare? And in that sense, we could kind of solve that problem and effectively bring make it more effective for those people down there. Uh, and I mean, you did mention that it does add that element of complication when it comes to so like a country like South Africa, where there is kind of corruption and there's rubbing points where you know money exchanges hands. Yeah, is that is that one one of the one of the things that we have proven time and time again is the efficiency of capital of capitalism in market-based allocation, right? So when it comes to housing, is that governmental housing projects, and you can like look through the records and you will see this time and time again, is governmental housing projects are always behind schedule, they are always over budget, and money just disappears, um, and it's a it's a leaky bucket. Whereas a bunch of uh, individuals or contractors that are building houses and particip- getting pe- uh, more people participating in that market to rent because they now have the ability to do so is actually a much more efficient way of handling specifically housing. But what is that exchange? It's, it's essentially a, a government, ex- like, again, thinking to the flow of money, the money flows to the person, and then that person flows to a private company. So that is essentially a transfer from public funds to a private company. And then that's where it kind of gets a little bit political because you're like, well, some fat cat is going to earn a profit and then there's profit incentives, but in a good way, because those profit incentives means that they're going to build houses based on the market that, you know, what people want. Although maybe in housing, I wouldn't say housing because that's kind of a little bit tricky because you build a house once and you kind of can't really replace it out. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. And I do think that uh, it will be a hurdle to overcome. But I do think that, you know, UBI coupled with technological deflation, which is just like the cost of things and stuff is falling because of our improvements in, you know, processes for manufacturing, as well as like, the zero marginal cost of information. So theoretically, education has zero marginal cost. If you have a YouTube course, some other person watching that YouTube course doesn't cost YouTube any more money, right? So there, there is technological deflation and then a way for people to just survive, which I think when, when we talk about like the purpose of government, people tend to misconstrue what the government's job is. They think that the government's job is the same as what a business's job is. But a government's job is to try and improve the quality of life and the welfare of the people living well, inside of that state and, and protect their interests. Theoretically. Right. <laughs> theoretically. Right. And the one of the ways that they can protect those interests is by making sure that there is a good economy because we've seen the better the economy, theoretically, the better quality of life, although that's kind of debatable once you get past a certain point, right? Mm. So I think that that's actually just a really good way for the government to redistribute funds to keep money moving, right? Is that Mm. they were going to go to private institutions anyway, 
But instead of going directly to private institutions, now they're going to the government via taxation or other uh, methods, and then it's being mm. redistributed to everyone. And here's here's one of the uh, things that I think about when I think about UBI, right? I love Cape Town. I know that you love Cape Town too, right? It is a beautiful, beautiful city on the southern tip of Africa. I just watched the most gorgeous sunset before hopping on this on this podcast. And the only real issues that I have with the city are crime and homelessness, right? And these are crimes of desperation. These are people coming and like stealing your cell phone so that they can sell it uh, uh, and, you know, buy uh, whether it be drugs or whether it be food or something is like they, they need that, right? And so for me, UBI is kind of like the way that we remove that desperation from society. And because that desperation has been removed, I mean, we've talked about this in previous mm. podcast episodes. If we can solve the problem of desperation inside of Cape Town, Cape Town will thrive as a remote working hub. It will thrive as a tourism hotspot. And we'll have all of this foreign capital injected into the economy right here, which means that we'll have like Germans coming and sitting at coffee shops and sipping on, you know, 35 Rand cappuccinos. And there's going to be a barista behind the counter. It's going to be Moses, right? Moses <laughs> is going to be behind the counter, like doing his, doing his thing, making coffee, enjoying yeah. himself because that's his art, right? He doesn't have to be there and he doesn't necessarily resent the fact that he's there. He's there because this is his art and he loves making, he loves making coffee for people. And also, you know, it, it changes his life from, or it changes everyone's lives from surviving, right? So the reason to work as a person who's on UBI is that you're just surviving if you've, if you've got 8,000 around a month, but you can thrive by working on top of that. Yeah, exactly. So, so on the, on the, on the part of uh, crime, so from the reading I did, it was very brief, it, it does seem that it does decrease. Uh, there are a few studies that show that it does decrease the time, the number of offending, offendings. So basically, people who commit crimes. So that is uh, one aspect to it. The other one being there is m- most of the the things that I've read is is actually it's actually a psychological effect. So by giving someone uh, sort of a you know, sort of UBI, you are giving them a kind of sense of hope. Because when you're living on like one or two dollars or one or two, you know, you're living on scraps, you kind of lose this, even the ability to imagine that you could get to that point. So when you're so like downtrodden, sometimes it's like you, you don't even you don't even want to bother like trying to start a mm. business. You, you, you know, when you, you're trug- struggling to make means ends. But from some a lot of the studies that I was looking through, it does have a good psych- psychological effect and that can lead to things like better health. So being able to, you know, instead of, you know, buying a McDonald's because that's like what's there and, you know, you're using your money that you've collected out of the car guard to go and buy yourself something dodgy. You can, you know, right. have some more positive effects on a psychological level and that'll eventually lead to having, uh, you know, more optimism and more, I mean, there's, there's kind of questions around whether it leads to more risk taking ability so it might uh, but it also might mean that you might just save that money yeah i mean you don't necessarily have to like you you should still save right but it's not 
a imperative to save because you know that like if things hit rock bottom, right, your business venture collapses and your girlfriend kicks you out and your parents disown you is you'll still be able to rent an apartment. You'll still be able to eat food and you'll still be able to look for a job. Um, and I think that another thing that is that is important to talk about in terms of, of that context is that a, world, uh, a country with UBI would have less exploitation in jobs because it isn't a necessity, right? This, uh, the, the person who is being mistreated at work and working way too hard and not being paid enough if they have a base to uh, like a, a basic income, they could just leave. The, the second one is that the concept of a minimum wage would disappear because a minimum wage is just one of our ways of trying to reduce exploitation. But in a case where you don't have to work means that exploitation isn't a problem in that context. And we could, you know, not care about minimum wage. I mean, like, let's take, for instance, you really like dogs, right? And someone's like, hey, Jason, uh, can you watch my dogs all of Saturday uh, for 50 rand, right? Technically, they are breaking minimum wage laws, right? They are offering you less than minimum mm -hmm. wage to do something. But now you are just planning to sit at home and watch YouTube videos for the entire day anyway. So, But I could come do it on your couch. And uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And look at your dogs, and I get you know a little bit extra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think that I think that what you said about um, it being a psychological improvement to the people who are on it is definitely true. Uh, mm. One of the objections to that, though, is especially in South Africa, there are quite a few people who are quite critical of um, like homeless people or underprivileged people in the country, and. If you suggest giving eight thousand rand a month to people mm. in South Africa, they'd be like, "Oh no, they're just going to go and spend it on drugs and alcohol." That's a it's a political thing. It, it's a bit of a political thing, and like keep in mind that I could definitely see a populist, a populist political, uh, a political candidate run on the platform of we should not have UBI or we should drop UBI because people are buying drugs and alcohol with it while sidestepping everything that is good about it right because people don't like the idea that their tax money is being used by someone to go and take drugs the fact of the matter is that we we have seen in uh in these small studies in canada and finland that communities that started receiving a ubi there was actually a decrease in uh, drug and alcohol abuse because of what you said like people felt like they had a better chance of succeeding a lot of a lot of drugs and alcohol abuse happens because people feel that they can't get out like this is where they are and that's where they're going to stay uh whereas this sa says like hey listen you can you can go back to school you can actually clean up your life but if you are just gonna do drugs right at least you're not doing drugs on the street at least you're doing drugs mm. in your apartment right at mm. least you're not begging from people for food is you you mm. at least have your food so even if people did spend it on drugs and alcohol at it's still a better situation for them 100 uh, percent. and I, I think it, it maybe like talks more to 
you know, having a, in a sense, it is a, it's a social security system. So it's a, a system where, you know, if you, you know, we, we read all these stories about people living month to month. Um, and then one day they have, you know, maybe they couldn't pay their car payment for one month and then they have a car accident and suddenly they don't, they're not insured or, you know, something happens, you know, maybe they, they get sick and then they, they lose that extra month and suddenly that puts them into debt. And then there's a debt cycle that takes them lower and lower down. So whether, you know, that's a, something that UBI solves, which I mean, it might be an easier way of doing it, whether you have you know, better governance around or better government policy around, you know, the fact that if you default, there's not a, so much of a penalty. And I mean, in a sense, we do kind of have, you know, the, the whole credit system of, you know, you know, credit scores and all of that, which is uh, not necessarily controlled by the government, but, you know, it's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, if you do something wrong, you're going to get punished more and then you won't be able to pull yourself out of that hole. So having that sort of mental, uh, catching net of saying like, okay, we can look after you. Um, you, you not necessarily going to be living a, a lush life, but you, you will be able to survive and get by. Oh, uh, so, so specifically with that is, I think it's important to have a whole bunch of, you know, economists sit around and calculate what the UBI should be based on what the threshold is for surviving. Right. So not uh, so I, I spitballed the 8,000 rand a month because that's how I understand surviving in Cape Town. But fact of the matter is that you can survive for significantly less than that in this country. And also it uh, because you can live anywhere, uh, we'd see, I think, a exodus from cities where people have to be in order to do their jobs, which they need to have, where mm. they could go and live in a much more affordable part of the country mm. and potentially even stimulate those areas over there. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, um, what I'm very optimistic about is the fact that uh, in certain ways, the developing world is a little bit ahead of the sort of developed countries. And the fact that you know, in the developed countries, they had this idea of a consistent job where everyone had, you know, one mm -hmm. job and that was taxed a certain, in a certain way. But in, in a developing world, essentially, you do have multiple streams of income. And if you look at some of the westernized media, you see that that's becoming a very popular thing. You know, like you might not necessarily have a solid, you know, salary job, but you might be doing things on Fiverr. You might be doing a little piece on the side there in every different place. And also on the on top of that, you have the fact that you having more access to other forms of equity. So in, in my in the way that I think about it, uh, a small uh, sort of trading platform like Easy Equities can give you access to equity in a sense that you're not mm -hmm. essentially having to you know spend a lot of capital. It's still percentage based. There's no minimums. Uh, not an advertisement anyway, <laughs> by the way. But um, <laughs> essentially, you'll have more of those platforms where even if you're earning, you know, a hundred, a hundred, or even if you're earning like, you know, the 8,000 Rand that we're talking about, you could still put, put a portion of that into, uh, for instance, stocks or fractional home ownership and all of these kind of nice things, uh, and have some form of yeah. equity. Although whether that's within your lifetime makes sense, whether someone would, 
forego the opportunity cost of spending that extra because you know if you only if you're only saving like a hundred a hundred rand a month or you know even a thousand rand a month it can get you to somewhere but whether it gets you to somewhere over a lifespan to be able to afford a house one day you know that's something that you have to kind of consider when it comes to the opportunity but it does give you some access to a form of capital so i'm sure you can tell from this uh from this half hour so far that i'm i'm a bit of a fan of the concept of uBI mm. uh, i I do have uh one maybe two objections to it, but they're very uh they're very soft objections and so what what you said is is definitely true on a on an economic sense but from a i don't want to say an emotional sense but like a psycho spiritual sense is that some people are afraid that a UBI will diminish the value of work. So there's this industrial age idea that the purpose of a of a human is to contribute economically. And I think that we're kind of on the precipice of going into a different age. Actually, I, I've mentioned this book to you a few times and I will mention it again, is uh, The World After Capital is such a good read and it actually talks about the transition from the industrial age into the knowledge age and about our like the values that were ingrained into us during the industrial age of like getting our sense of purpose from from our jobs and the value of work and this is something that i've been struggling with in in my own life because i essentially have a ubi or i guess it's not um super basic but it's like i have you know a company that uh i don't necessarily have to do too much work at and it will give me a salary every month and i have to figure out what it is i actually want to do with my time uh is that you know volunteering is that spending time on arts and and hobbies is that um getting into good physical shape spending time with my family and friends and stuff like that and the answer to those is is yes, but in what quantities? How do I figure it out? What is it I'm going to do with my time? And it means that a UBI will kind of be a, f- a forced introspection to a bunch of well, to the the population, saying like, what it is, what is it that you want to spend your time doing? Because uh, this is something Simon has said a few times, where when you're young it's this idea that like what do you want to be when you when you grow up like what is your dream job and his answer is like my my dream is not labor right my my dream isn't to be be labor the way that i phrase it is um it's it's that uh, work is work so no matter what you're doing whenever you're expending whenever you're working it's always expending energy so I mean, I know because I'm sort of a little bit lazy and maybe potentially a procrastinator. You know, if I had a constant source of income, my worry is that I would just lie flat on a couch and play Xbox all day. Um, because, you know, you can still, you know, order some food, you can go have coffee, you can, you know, you can, there's almost this idea that you will move towards sloth, like sloth and be like more lazy. Uh, and it, to a certain extent, a lot of the studies that I was reading through, they do have a, there is a market drop in the hours worked, but whether that is to focus on things like education, as you said, or to um, child rearing, you know, there might be a mm-hmm. benefit in a, in a sort of psychological and societal sense. 
But I mean, in your circumstance and in the circumstance of, you know, someone who's essentially got some something to fall back on, you kind of have to have to think a little bit harder in terms of, you know, what that means uh, for you going forward and what that means, you know, how you're going to contribute and whether, you, I mean, if as someone who doesn't really aspire to, you know, things that are kind of material, it comes becomes very hard mm-hmm. because for mo- like someone who's more materialistic, they're like, well, I want a car. So they're going to work a little bit harder to, you know, maybe afford that or maybe afford to go on like a nice vacation. But I mean, also having been minimalist and also being, you know, very anti-materialistic, I'd say it's, it's very hard to have those things to aspire to. Yeah, I hear that. Um, well, one of the things that I will uh, circle back to is we have a problem in the first world that's going to start affecting South Africa soon as well. And that is a, an elderly population, right? It's a, there are going to be more old people than young people and taking care of elderly has uh, historically been something that people did because it was a thing that they did. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a part of tradition. It was a part of uh, just what being in a family was. But then when we moved into like full industrialization, you would go and you would work the entire day. And so the elderly went off to homes, right? And they would, they would be in an old age home. But I, I would see that the growth of people taking care of the elderly again as something that they do. You know, you, you're on UBI, you can take care of your, your aging grandfather or your aging parents or something like that, which I think will take strain off of A, the person's uh, diminished value of work or purposefulness, but also it will take strain off of the government which needs to essentially take care of old people if they can't take care of themselves yeah and and for a lot of uh, i mean maybe for us it's not so much of a problem but to some of our friends there is this concept of uh, you know a black tax and and having to look after th- those parents and maybe in the same household luckily like i'm fortunate enough that my parents mm-hmm. are like you know don't you don't have to look after me but you know, if you're earning a certain salary and, and immediately, you know, 20 to 30% of that goes to looking after your kids or looking after your, I mean, kids is a different thing, but looking after your parents, you've kind of got this generational sandwich, as they call it. So, I mean, it exacerbates when you do have kids, because then you're basically looking after them and looking after your parents, and you're not able to, you know, fulfill your own kind of dreams and goals. So, I mean, it, it, it can it can be problematic, but having something look after those uh your parents as they get older would alleviate that and allow you to have more access to something that you really want to fulfill so that definitely and then uh also and i'm just like completely spitballing off the cuff over here Mm. is i do believe that if ubi were a thing we would see a growth of community-centric households where people share expenses more Mm and are like form form closer communities because as we know like uh, sharing a household is one of the most effective ways to save money and having a multiple income household is is really good so if you've got like an entire family that lives in a house together th- that would be economically beneficial for everyone involved over then that could lead to you know stronger social cohesion inside of communities um as well as like 
better emotional support and like less mental health issues and also solving the problem of taking care of children and taking care of adults yeah and and one of the things that uh kind of stuck out for me when when i was reading up on it is that uh especially in the developing world there is a tendency to want to i mean in the in the trials that they did for ubi there's a tendency to want to group those uh sort of monthly payments and then have more of a larger tranche that comes out at a certain point so i mean it's it's similar to the idea of a stock file that we have in south africa where you know members of the community will group that money together and use that uh sort of collective mm-hmm. money to um you know build a school or you know uh send one of your you know friends to college or university and there's kind of those kind of social aspects of pooling those amounts of money together but then again there's always the devil's advocate of whether it would just be better to have those sort of systems taken care of already and not have to have these kind of, uh, I would say, layer two kind of uh, solutions. Yeah, I'd say that, and again, this harkens back to housing and everything, is that we we do know that in a lot of cases, such as allocation, just allocation in general, is the market is really good at allocating so whether that be food or schools or supermarkets or housing is we know that that's actually really good if there are people who can participate in the market and if everyone's got a ubi everyone can participate in that market Mm. um but one thing that uh there that we don't have a price for that we can't allocate a market to is you know the (laughs) the looming climate catastrophe Mm. And I think that that's something that more people would be interested in getting involved with, whether it be volunteering in local projects, whether it be like, you know, sea cleanup or advocacy groups for, you know, not burning down rainforests and stuff like that is like, I believe that there are so many people who care about causes that they just can't realistically become involved with because, you know, man's got to eat. If you are already thinking about that next meal, as you were saying, do you even do you even think about things like uh, ex- extrinsic kind of causes? I mean, thinking back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you kind of focus on the first layer of shelter, food, water, once you get that. And only right at the top is things like self-actualization, where I'd probably, I mean, it, it's not necessarily a good model, but I'd say you're due more towards a self-actualization stage where you're looking to kind of find things more in intrinsic in terms of you know fulfilling your ambitions and goals so you're looking to do like more altruistic things because you have filled up all of these other needs on the other levels luckily I, i've never been in that position so it, i mean it, i mean there's a lot of things that come out of it and one of the one of the main points that, that i that i saw is that in terms of all of these studies that have done been done there's always been a sort of closing point so they've never really been truly universal in terms of like persistence. So in a certain sense, that, that can mm-hmm. skew the data uh, because, I mean, especially also because, you know, when it comes to funding these kind of initiatives, it also in- tends to be targeted to a certain group. So you can kind of imagine that you think it's, okay, it's a UBI, but, you know, there's always this idea in the back of your mind that, you know, at some point it might stop. And does that also have a, an effect on your kind of, the way you approach your spending. So, I mean, if I was getting a UBI and I realized it's just a trial of like, you know, two years and then they're going to reevaluate if I deserve it, 
that might affect my spending. It might affect the way what I do with that money. There's also the thing of, you know, in this in the case of US stimulus checks, like a lot of people were probably just, you know, spending it on GMC and crypto, you know? It's like where it can you really control what that what happens with it? It's it's super interesting and I I would love to see the first country or like the first state somewhere decide to do that just like to commit to it and give it you know the time of day and then we can then the rest of the world can see what happens to that country or that state and we can make our judgments based on that the proof is also going to be very much in the pudding because when it comes to developing countries the problem is the execution is usually missing so whether you you know whether you have something that's more targeted towards a sp- certain demographic or whether you just have it in a general universal sense you know there's certain mechanisms that have to be put in place to make sure that you know people don't game the system you know people don't pretend their dead uncle is alive and collect two of them you know there's always <laughs> room for corruption so it's very much in the ex- ex- yeah but i mean that's that's there for every every uh you know governmental system i mean i'd say that UBI is a better than welfare because there also isn't like an incentive for you to stay unemployed and there isn't an incentive for you to have more children so that you can gather more more checks. Yeah. But luckily in this country we do have grants for kids. But I think just to wrap yeah. it up maybe we just have a question. So as a kind of person in your sort of uh I would say income group what would you be willing to spend in terms of your tax? to contribute to UBI and what would you expect to earn because there's, there's going to be a I mean it's maybe a question for another another conversation but it's going to be somewhere between you're not happy to have a hundred percent of your money taken but you know where does that where does that number yeah. lie yeah I mean uh, that that's an interesting that's a very interesting uh <laughs> that's a very interesting question because that's kind of like communal universal basic income everyone's entire income gets taken and then everyone gets the same salary universally it's like tip sharing for a country (laughs) we'll just we'll just leave that for for people to think about yeah we'll have another topic (laughs) on like communism or something like that but i think for for me i'd probably say i'd say around five percent is is kind of my threshold mostly because i i want to i have this idea where i want to control my own funds uh so i'd rather donate Mm -hmm you know, my own money that I have left over to kind of causes that I believe in. As for the amount that I, I wish, I mean, we can have a dis- discussion about it another time, but it's probably, as you were saying, around somewhere between 10 to uh, around eight to 10,000 Rand. I mean, this is, this is interesting and I'm sure we can have yeah. it. So uh, tell me, where, where are you right now? What are you doing? And uh... yeah, so I'm in a small, yeah. small hotel in the middle of Zagreb, Croatia uh i'm kind of in transit doing some self-isolation before heading over to london quite a nice little smallish city although you'll be happy to know there's lots of uh, plazas and there's very wide i'd say very wide streets and not wide streets but wide sidewalks and yourself hi i'm up i'm up in gordon's bay looking out over the ocean or i was but it's dark outside now it's beautiful up here Mm. and it's turning into summer and there's flowers, and I'm happy, and I have a new podcasting mic, and I'll I'll get one when I get back to the UK, because uh, my my yeah, mic is it. very scratchy, and I've even tried to use the uh, 
the, the one from my cell phone, which has only got one earpiece working. But anyway, it's been great chatting. Yeah. Been good chatting. Have a great yeah. afternoon. I will see you on the next podcast. <laughs>